All right. So the first thing I'd like you to do, and this is this is just selfishly, selfishly helping me out, is take a minute or two to write down and then hopefully share out loud. I don't know if we get to everybody, but write down and share out loud something you're excited about, something you're excited to learn about, what you know, what makes you excited or hopeful or joyful about this idea of of Christian or Christ-centered universalism. And then two, like just be brutally honest. Like, what are you skeptical about? Like, what are you sort of like, I don't know, like, what's the thing that you are most doubtful about or raises raises the most questions or question marks in your head? Anybody capable of sharing one or both of those two thoughts? Sure, I'm happy to. So to the first one, I think I'm excited about this idea. And I'll I'll say I I missed the sermon where you started talking about it, but I saw I missed the sermon and then was even more excited to have the opportunity to join the class. So I like, it's an idea that appeals and I'll say like, has sort of been where my gut has been for a long time, just in sort of like, like there's got to be an alternative to the idea that, you know, the vast majority of the world is going to, you know, burn in a fiery pit for all eternity. Right. (laughs) So that's, I guess that's what I've sort of hoped for a long time would be true. And, you know, excited to like, maybe learn how it could be. I think my skepticism comes from like, I know that this is what I want to be true and, you know, wanting something to be true and like, is not necessarily correlated with it being true. Right. And so I I guess I worry that there's sort of like a, a tendency to like find a reason to believe the things that we prefer to believe, you know, like recognizing that bias there. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Thank you, Bonnie. I think what I'm excited to sort of learn about sort of following up on the sermon is sort of, as you talked about, there are like seven theological communities and universalism was like sort of the majority view for a number of <clears throat> centuries, but we now know that's not the case. And so sort of like what happened in that sort of timeline and how majority and minority viewpoints took sort of their current shape. And then what I, one of my skepticism would be among a lot of, I think the one I think of off the top of my head is the passage in Revelation where there's like a millennial reign of Jesus and he's like the the king of the earth. And then there are people who like, I think are born during that reign and they like rebel against him after I think Satan gets unleashed or whatever. And so I was like, well, if people are literally under a theocracy of Jesus and still reject him in that context, like, what does it mean with universalism? Yeah, fascinating. That's a great question. I can share. So as far as, so what I'm excited about, I would say this is an area of doubt that I've had for a while that like I've struggled with when I think about, I was assumed or, or was taught that it's kind of like a non-negotiable of the faith to believe in hell as is commonly preached in like evangelical white churches, basically. So I'm excited to learn an alternative that addresses those doubts that I've had for a while. And if I'm being completely honest, what I'm fearful of is like learning that like I've kind of built a house of cards in my faith and like worried that like picking out picking out some of the cards might just kind of topple the whole thing down if if, if I'm being completely honest. So I'm yeah. not saying that that's going to happen, but it's like a bit of a concern. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for that honesty, Chris. And yeah, I think, I think you're not alone. I I have had similar conversations of, yeah, so much, so much Christian faith is built like a house of cards and we're explicitly told uh, the most famous, the example I grew up in was around like Genesis and creation stuff. If Genesis one did not literally physically happen, then the whole Bible can't be trusted. And, and, you know, putting my continuing metaphor cards on the table like i don't think genesis one literally happened and when i came to that belief yeah there i did have a a period of like well shoot then nothing is true and what what a disservice we do to folks when we encourage people to build such a flimsy faith right i can share i'm I'm tommy Tommy. melissa's husband we're watching this together i just just sort of carrying on from what you just shared very grew up in a very similar background and so i think i have for a long time have tried to recenter my faith on the story of jesus and his life and then working things out from there and so i feel a lot of resonance with the idea of universalism and i really love the idea of it dovetailing with the with the christian story because i still 
in all my struggles through kind of understanding my faith and where it lies today, I still find that narrative to be the most compelling story I know as far as trying to make meaning and sense of the world. I think my skepticism comes in a bit when it just comes to the afterlife in general. I feel like that's one of the things in the process of trying to understand kind of where I am in the world that I've just sort of released in the sense that I kind of throw it in the category of things that are unknowns that I don't know that I'll ever kind of be able to have any level of certitude about. So, uh, yeah, I think that's my skepticism is just sort of around the the idea of I just, there's a part of me that still wonders if when I die, then I've returned to dust and that's it. So a couple things, a lot of what I was thinking has actually already been said by Bonnie in particular. That was kind of my first thought about wanting to unravel a sweater, but being worried, you know, what, what does it mean if you do unravel it and like being interested in delving into the contradictions, but like one points back at another. But the thing that, that I was thinking more uniquely was that Pastor Anthony, when you were saying that like, this is a bit of a spillover sermon and this is like the stuff that was on your cutting room floor. Some of us, apparently I'm preaching the choir here, wanted it to go on. Like when you were wrapping up the sermon, it was like, okay, we're warmed up. Let's, let's get into this, you know? But the reason I give that background is when I was a kid on a long drive with my dad, my dad wasn't a churchgoer. He was actually scarred as a kid with like a Bible thumping, sweaty preacher, you're going to hell brimstone kind of thing. And he really ran away from the church, but considered himself still a believer in God, but not, you know, organizational, et cetera. But I remember he asked me as a kid when I was an evangelical household, not his, you know, my mother's at the time, he said, you know, if someone in a room place has never heard of the gospel, could they go to heaven? And I, you know, being a chi- evangelical child, of course not. No, it's just non-negotiable. He's like, are you sure? Because that, how do you, you know? And as a kid, I had that ready answer. And obviously now I either don't think that or at least heavily, heavily. So that's the personal thing I bring to it. And I'm bringing, trying to bring my dad back to explore his faith by giving him some things that aren't fire and brimstone and that are love-based. So anyways, that's the personal angle I bring to the class. Thank you, Skylar. I appreciate that. Nice coffee mug. Thank you. On brand. Limited edition. I can also share. Just growing up in in a conservative church, I was always kind of skeptical and frankly thought it kind of unjustifiable that someone could be eternally separated from God just because they happened to be born into a family who practiced something else, practiced Islam or practiced atheism or Hinduism or something like that. And I was always more of a fan of the kind of like end of the last battle from C.S. Lewis's Narnia books, that sort of like, oh, even if you were, you know, worshiping Satan or whatever the equivalent is, if you did good things in Satan's name, it was really in, in my name, Aslan being that pretty obvious. <laughs> but what, what kind of makes me doubtful, and I guess there's probably different levels of, it's like a kind of a spectrum of universalism from, you know, this is the only life you have. And if you don't pray the prayer, then you're, you're, you're you know, no, no chance for you to things like, you know, purgatory to things like, you know, the gates of heaven are always open, but not everyone will necessarily go through them to the more like eventually everyone, you know, will, will be turned and compelled to Christ's love. But the, the latter one, like I, I want to believe in some ways, but I also, I, I, I mean, if eventually everyone's going to do it anyway, you know, what does that do to, to free will and, what's kind of the point of caring about that if everyone's going to end up, you know, on the side of Christ anyway, like, okay, well then I guess we don't have to worry about it or think about it or do anything anyway. So yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's helpful. I can quickly share just to round us out. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Like I kind of shared in the chat, I think a lot of what Bonnie said was exactly what I was thinking. So yeah, for me, I'm excited to hear about Christ-centered universalism. I'd never heard about it or learned about it before. And yeah, I think I'm exactly what Bonnie said. I'm kind of skeptical in terms of, I want this to be true. Does that necessarily mean it is true? And like really trying to center myself in that and kind of like keep bringing that skepticism because that's something I'm always worried about in like so many spaces of Christianity. Yeah. 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 I may, sorry to to speak to you, but a a quick wrap up to what I was saying or something that, that others have made me think about. So recently, I was hearing something on the radio about Native North Americans, 
And, you know, I started hearing and thinking about like the great spirit, which is essentially, I think, monotheism and the connection to nature and the reverence and the treating each other well. And I really started thinking, and this could apply to other cultures. I just noticed it more with native North Americans is other than being born in a different culture without mass media or whatever, what, what is the difference mm. in culture? I don't know the answer. Huge question. I barely know the question. If we could explore, does that make sense what I'm saying? Like, but for being born in a different culture, maybe the great spirit is simply Yahweh. And, you know, I don't know the answer to that. But I guess what I'm saying is, like someone else said, or and even I alluded to, if you're just born in another culture, but you have the same instincts towards love and worshiping a single God, you know, what what's the difference? I And that may be a little tangential, but I think it ties somewhat into universalism. So that's something that was on my mind, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that Jesus by a different name? Is that the Cherokee? The Cherokee they worship a supreme being named Yehovah or Yehovah, which, if you know your Hebrew, is very similar to Yahweh. So there's some fat. There's something fascinating going on there for sure. Yeah. All right. Thank. I think Avery, did you want to add anything either in the chat or out loud? I kind of covered what I had thought, especially sort of the. It's a completely new idea to me as well, but it yeah. also like it could answer some questions that I had and sort of gut feelings. So I'm just excited to learn more. Yeah. Great. Okay. Thank you, everybody. Yeah. So I wrote, I wrote all this down. This will help instruct sort of where we spend our time in weeks two and three. So, all right, let me do my best to kind of give the lay of the land. I would encourage you to take notes because we're going to do a lot of vocab, vocab and Bible verses. And yeah, if we, if we get this vocab right, that will simplify my communication. So here we go. Christian universalism, that is our topic for three weeks. So imagine a Venn diagram. There are Christians who are not universalists, and I would say, dare say, the majority these days. And there are universalists who are not Christians. So universalism is not an invention of Christianity. It's not an invention of the you know 20th or 21st century. You can find universalism in you know quite a few of the world's religions and you know, perhaps non-formal religion or sort of belief structures. And then, you know, there's the overlapping part of your Venn diagram are Christians who are universalists. And there are lots of ways that we could structure this class of like, what is the history of that group? Again, not invented by me last week, not invented by progressives or liberal Christians in the past hundred years. It's got a, you know, some would argue since the New Testament, a very, very long history. Others would say, you know, somewhere in the third century or something like that. It's got a long history. So we could talk about that. We could, you know, talk about all the ways that hellism or infernalism, which are ways of talking about that eternal conscious torment forms of hell have come about. That also has a history. It is not just we received it as the default in the past hundreds of years, but it has its own history of development. Yeah, so let me give attempt to give some, some definition to what Christian universalism is, and again, some vocabulary, some terms. So this is sort of, it's, I say definition, it's more of an explanation of what we're talking about and some assumptions. One of the assumptions I didn't write down here is, and this gets to what you were talking about, Tommy, the assumption that there is some sort of afterlife. And I, I don't know if we'll have time in our, we have, let's see, uh, four and a half hours altogether to get into like any sort of proof or apologetic for that. But again, some of the assumptions are you as a human being, you have a body a corpse and a soul. So this is a form of Christian dualism. And I would say historical healthy Christian dualism does not pit body and soul against each other. In order to be an entire human being, you need both of these combined. And unhealthy dualism says your body dies, you go to heaven as a soul, and that's the end of the story. 
that is a pretty modern invention of what the afterlife looks like. The historical view of the afterlife is you are not complete again until your body is resurrected and reunited with your soul. But again, our assumption is that our personalities, identity, something about us persists even after our bodies die. And then eventually body and soul is reunited in the resurrection, new heavens and new earth. So that's sort of assumption number one. All right, some further assumptions. These are the ones I actually wrote down. Number one is that the chief end of humanity is to enjoy God's presence. Okay, so we were created with some ultimate purpose, some ultimate end in philosophical terms. This is called telos, T E L O S. And Theology would teach that everyone has a tale, has a telos, has an end, has an ultimate goal state. And Christianity has taught that our, our chief end is to enjoy God's presence. If you were, if anybody here, formerly Catholic, any Catholics in the room? So you may have heard about this in Catholic theology as the beatific vision, which is this idea of when we behold God, we have reached our, our kind of ultimate end or purpose as a, as a human, to behold God's glory. But Protestants have had a version of this as well. They just kind of use different vocabulary. But this is the old St. Augustine quote, our hearts are restless until they rest in you. That is the idea that humanity were created with a purpose. And I begin with this as sort of the background assumption, because this has some implications for Stephen, what you mentioned briefly, how do we think about free will? Are we ultimately free in all ways? Well, we know kind of instinctually, no, I'm not free to start floating up to the moon. I'm not free to breathe underwater. So uh, there are some limits to my freedom. There are limits imposed by society and civilization. I'm not free to murder without there being repercussions. And then there would be these larger sort of metaphysical, spiritual ways that I am not free. Am I free to... Am I free to find happiness in ways that are ultimately destructive to me? Some would say, well, sure, people try to get happy by doing destructive things all the time. But the pushback then would be, are they, are they actually happy? Have they actually discovered their end goal? So this is kind of assumption number one. We have a telos, we have a chief end, we have a chief goal, and that is to enjoy God's presence. So number two... Because of our both collective, humanity-wide, and individual fallenness, we're unable to enjoy God's presence. There is something about the human state that trends away from enjoying God's presence, trends away from being the loving, rational people that we ought to be. And even if you, you know, don't necessarily have a super Calvinistic view of like depravity and the fall and all of that. It doesn't take a, a lot of smarts to look around the world and say like, hmm, humanity seems pretty effed up. What are we going to do about it? So we have a chief end to enjoy God's presence. But number two, we seem to be unable to enjoy God's presence. So number three, God has, through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, acted decisively to enable all humans to enjoy God's presence. And we'll get into some of the scripture of this later on, but this is the idea that in Christ, Christ provided justification, the ability to be saved to all of humanity. Hebrews talks about, you know, Christ dying once and for all. Second Timothy talks about justification being provided to all, all this sort of thing. So God has, through Christ and the Spirit, acted to enable us to enjoy God's presence. So, number four, when we take advantage of the the means of grace, the take advantage of what God has done on our behalf, we are, and I put this in quotation marks in my notes, saved. We are once again enabled to enjoy the presence of God, to be united with the, the divine presence. So some, point number five in my notes, some people experience that salvation today. 
they make a decision or they are born into a family or a culture or a society where they get to experience that. And these people are generally known as Christians. I had some other notes, which I eventually deleted because I thought it would take us on too far off of a tangent, but I will just say briefly, there probably are those who are experiencing that salvation and joying of God's presence who are, this gets to Skylar's question, not what we would label Christians, who are perhaps not aware of the name Jesus of Nazareth, but still seem to be enjoying God's presence in a real way. But point, main point being, there are people who experience that today. They're generally known as Christians. And number six, some don't. Some don't experience that. They either make a decision not to, or they're unaware, or they are in some sort of system, culture, civilization that has bent their will, their desires towards things that we would recognize as harmful, destructive, or otherwise. Okay. Number seven, God will never stop continuing to offer the means of grace, even upon our physical death. Oh yeah, Stephen adds a good asterisk. There are those that we might label Christians who actually aren't experiencing salvation right now. And that gets into like the definition of what is a Christian. Is that a sociological term? Is it a checkbox that you check when Gallup calls you up and asks? Is it people who attend church on a regular basis? Yeah, so that gets into that. Yeah, they're, they're one of the fa- favorite conversations a few years back is, is President Trump a Christian? Well, by face value, He says that he is, and so he meets at least the sociological definition. But that's a separate question from, does President Trump routinely and regularly show qualities and characteristics that reflect the way of Jesus? That's a separate question. So, yeah, interesting stuff. Okay, so God, number seven, will never stop continuing to offer the means of grace upon our physical death. And here is where we probably hit the breaking point from where many what many of us were taught is that death was the the final point at which one could enter into this salvation state this ability to enjoy God's presence so you know i was taught that and there's a bible verse that we people quote and we can talk about you know everyone is given one chance to live and then upon death there is judgment so if you did not use the means of grace enjoy god's presence get saved whatever make a decision then after death too late that's the end goodbye and where christian universalism begins to break from that common narrative is not so fast why why do we believe this? Is that actually said anywhere? We've got far more scriptural arguments that God's character never changes, that God's mercy endures forever, that God's loving kindness never ends. So why why did we make physical death this somewhat arbitrary breaking point between when God stops offering the means of grace? Again, we're gonna we'll get into the scripture around all of this, just sort of giving the lay of the land right now. Number eight, there are some that will resist God even upon death. So the idea here is that there, there are probably many folks who once they are just souls standing in the presence of God, they will be like, ah, I, I, I finally see the truth. I finally see what's going on here. Yes, I want to enjoy God's presence. Yes, I want to be united with the triune God. They were just never offered the opportunity on earth, or they never had the vocab or whatever. You got those sorts of people. But you probably also have other kinds of people whose character, that part of your soul which helps determine your wants and desires, that if they were to encounter an all-loving, forgiving, grace-filled, merciful being, would be repulsed. And they would still continue uh, to resist the presence of God. They would still be in the presence of God, but they would experience this as a form of hell. So they would still be in the presence of God, meaning I see no way to philosophically, theologically, or scripturally argue that there is a place where God is not. That flies in the face of 
most Christian doctrines around God, the the word that we use is omnipresence, that God is all places at all times, that there is no molecule of the universe in which God God is not. And so hell is often described as sort of this, you know, separated from the presence of God. But I don't, there's, there's no there's no way you can be separated from the presence of God. The universe is all there is, or God's presence is, is, is everywhere. So these people who are resisting God would still be in the presence of God, but they would experience this as a form of hell, meaning being in the presence of an all-loving, all-kind, merciful, graceful being would be repulsive to them. Then you've got a different group. This is point nine in my notes. That they would stop resisting at some point. They would recognize that their repulsion or running away from this presence would is is now counter to their originally created end. So we're back to point one. If the chief end of all humanity and every single human ever created is to enjoy God's presence, is to be reunited with their divine creator, at some point, a person will realize every decision that they've made has pulled them away from their created goal and would then hit a form of rock bottom which would begin to pull them back but they would still need to go through some period of healing in order to enjoy god's presence that their souls had been so scarred wounded traumatized corroded by their misordered desires that they would have to go through some sort of therapeutic healing in order to fully enjoy the presence of God once again. We could explain this healing process as a form of discipline, or what many scriptures translate as the word punishment, perhaps even painful, but ultimately still therapeutic and cathartic. All right, I'm going to pause there and see what questions or pushback that has brought up so far. I put that in the chat, but I just something that came to mind was I, I like thought that separated from God was like an actual in versus places. And so I Googled it and, and saw that there was at least one that I saw that was pretty like, I don't know, it seemed pretty clear, at least in the English translation that I was reading in a very, you know, straightforward reading of it that it was talking about like, yeah, people who will suffer punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. And so I, you know, that might not be something necessarily just right now, but that is something that I'm thinking about. Yeah, 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 that's good. Yep, yep. We will definitely address Second Thessalonians 1. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious what we know about this, you know, what you're describing as healing process, you know, akin to a discipline process, uh, you know, what we think that looks like and why. Yeah, sure. Yeah, again, I'm saving up a bunch of like scripture talk, But briefly, Hebrew scriptures often talk about God's presence as a purifying fire. Yep, Skylar's putting in the same thing. And then Paul refers to a process in which it sounds like all people are go through a purifying fire and you come out the other side with some things burned up, but also with some things remaining. So that's that's a brief answer. I guess one reaction I have is I feel like my original understanding of universalism sort of was, I think there was this, this impulse from people, at least who I knew were universalists, to shy away from evangel- like evangelism because there wasn't sort of the same incentive because hell was no longer being sort of dangled over people's sort of decision-making process. I guess it's interesting, and maybe this will come up throughout the rest of the classes. This sounds very sort of in that same impulse because I can imagine that there's like scenarios where like, and not, and this is of course hyperbole, but like the straight white male Christian is like, he gets in heaven quick. And then like the gay people, we got to get burned up a little bit extra and the Muslims got to get burned like double extra. And so there's still this interesting like incentive to evangelize and like a certain like praxis that I think is still, yeah, it's just interesting to consistency there. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think there are, and I think this is what makes it, so another word that we could use is patristic, patristic universalism. Anybody know the word patristic? No? Okay, so this refers to the church fathers, and I will add, and mothers, but generally your second generation Christians and forward writing their writings about Christianity and the early church. The study of that is called patristics. So pater meaning father, uh, P-A, I'll just put it in the chat. 
P-A, patristic. And uh, yeah, so patristic theology would be uh, the theology of the early church fathers. And there are different dates that like how, how early is early? I don't know, up to six, seven hundred, something like that. So patristic universalism, and I would say most Christian universalism, still does have a form of hell. But yeah, I don't even like using the word hell because I feel like our cultural imagination has been so tainted by somewhat cartoonish depictions of hell. A devil with a pitchfork and horns, lots of influence by Dante's Inferno, of these rings of hell, the sort of endless, endless fire and flame sort of thing. But yeah, the the patristic universalism, the early church fathers, still definitely explained a process of salting by fire, which is actually a phrase of Jesus, going through a purifying fire, some form of purification, which then enables one's soul and eventually eventual body to enjoy God's presence fully. But yeah, then you put this in the wrong hands, like until says and can be like, well, you know, it's just a new form of fire and hellstone sort of preaching. So I think you always need to pair your evangelism with, you know, the proper tools of, of good biblical exegesis and community-based biblical interpretation. So you don't just end up sending people to hell that you don't like. Another thought I have is I do like, like, based on what Antonio was talking about, but the kind of idea that there is still, you know, earlier I mentioned like kind of what's the point, but like fr- from that kind of evangelizing kind of perspective or like, you know, what Christians are meant to do now, it's not necessarily about, you know, going to people who aren't like you or who you don't like and telling them they're wrong so much, but there is like this, this like kind of goal of like building God's kingdom, which... Mm-hmm you know, requires work and, and it's, it's like, yeah, it, sure. It'll, it'll eventually happen. But like, I know there's like a verse somewhere about like kingdom of heaven is forcefully advancing and forceful oh. taking hold of it or something like that. Yeah. And I, you know, despite the gendered language and that I, I'm, I am a fan of that kind of idea of like, you know, yes, this is happening, but like it's, it's happening through the work of those in the way of Christ. Yeah, if the the invitation is the the healing, the reforming of our souls can begin today, and God calls us to be co-workers, colleagues in the bringing of a the bringing of the kingdom of God, what First Peter calls Earth, where justice can make its home. This creating of a, of a society, a culture, a civilization, a planet, a creation that's capable of being a place of justice where, where God can reside. That work begins today. And it is a, it is a big, what's the, the phrase that's coming to mind is like a, like a horse kicking, like a bucking off of the, the story that was handed to me anyway of believe this gospel so you can go to heaven when you die, as opposed to believe this gospel, this good news about God's already coming kingdom that you can become a part of today. And I still, yeah, I would still hesitate towards anything that's too fear-based. Hey, if you don't get saved, you're going to be purified with fire in the afterlife. It's all, it's all for your good, but you know, you could, you could avoid that if you just pray this prayer today. I would still avoid ways communicating the gospel in that sense. But I do, I do feel that there is a sense in which I, this is still the evangelical in me, friends. If I know if I know a way that somebody can begin begin the uh, a positive formational experience for their souls and character, I do feel some sort of moral responsibility to let somebody in on that. Now, I will pair that with the fact that I believe that God's Spirit is active and moving not only in the organized religion that I call my own. All right, so that's probably where evangelism and colonialism get paired up where I assume that I am, I am the one true holder of all possible means to commune with the divine, as opposed to a spirit of a learner that says, maybe 
other religions have also discovered ways to commune with the divine. Now, I still ultimately am making a truth claim, and this is what makes it Christian universalism, that when the scales drop off our eyes, when we finally behold God, it's going to look an awful lot like Jesus. It's going to look an awful lot like the Trinitarian God proclaimed in Orthodox Christianity. That's still my truth claim. That is still what I'm setting down. But I'm less likely to assume if you don't believe in the Trinity, you're going to burn in hell. I'm not going to believe that anymore. I'm going to believe that whatever happens upon death is educational and and therapeutic rather than punitive and retributive, which is the ways most of the times that hell has been talked about as punishment and retribution. Let me, let me try to lay down a little bit of a biblical case, and a biblical case minus Paul, okay? Because Paul is, believe it or not, probably the most universalistic texts that we have in the New Testament. And if we were to cover just Paul's text, we'd be here for a long, 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 long time. So we're going to cover everything but Paul right now. To begin with, I'm going to give you another vocab term. I'll throw this in the chat. It is a Greek word, apokatastasis, apokatastasis or stasis. And this word was used in a bunch of different contexts in the Greek-speaking, Koine Greek-speaking world. It was used in terms of like geography or land around the notion of returning, returning land, the per- periodical restitution of land to its owners. So you leased out some, the lease ran out, the land returned to you. That was apocatastasis. And then it was used in the Septuagint. Anybody, can anybody tell me what the Septuagint is? The Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures? Yes, that is right. Yeah, so Hebrew Bible, originally written mostly in Hebrew, some Aramaic, but a couple hundred or a couple hundred years before the time of Christ, the Jews had been scattered around the Greek-speaking world, and so they came up with a, a Greek text for what we would call the Old Testament, what they would just call the scriptures, Matthew through, or I'm sorry, Genesis through Second Chronicles in their case. And the Septuagint translated some things using the word apocatastasis, basically around the word restoration. And then so Ezekiel 16.55, there's this fascinating verse, your sister Sodom and her daughters will return to their former state. And that's apocatastasis this idea of restoration to the way that things were were originally. Which, quick aside, since we're talking about Sodom and Gomorrah, Sodom and Gomorrah, fascinating case study around language around eternal or everlasting destruction. So Sodom and Gomorrah is like your poster child in the Hebrew scriptures for literal fire and brimstone which will be destroyed forever. No generations will reside in these places. And then you get Ezekiel 16.55. Sodom and her sisters will be apocatastasis, will return to their former state. So I bring that up to say, whenever you encounter words like everlasting destruction, nobody will ever live here ever, put a little asterisk there in your, in your biblical interpretation notes of and we'll get into this more, forever does not mean what you think it means if you're speaking Hebrew or Greek, okay? Because there are often counter verses, counter points in the biblical narrative of you will be destroyed forever for all eternity, and you're going to return to your former state, okay? Then this word apocatastasis is used once again in Acts chapter 3, verse 21. And Peter is giving a little sermon or speech. And he says, and this is such a fascinating little verse around universalism. Repent. Good preaching. Always calling people to repent. Repent, therefore, and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out so that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send the Messiah appointed for you, that is Jesus. Verse 21, who must remain in heaven until the time of universal restoration that God announced long ago through his holy prophets. So that's apocatastasis, restoration, and then the Greek word for all, panton or panta, the universal restoration. 
So this was one of the great kept secrets of universalistic theology. Is that like it's built into some of the preaching of the the apostles in the book of Acts, and this is the the most famous example that. You need to repent so you can enjoy the times of refreshing from God, because Jesus, who must remain in heaven until the time of Apocatastasis Panton, the universal restoration of all things that God announced long ago. Now, the reason I bring this word up is that it is a key vocab term for back to our church fathers of the second century forward for how they built their universalistic or patristic theology. And it is... Yeah, it's just how they talked about it. So I would not be a very honest teacher right now if I didn't teach you this word, because it is the word that they use most often to talk about this this idea or this term. So the thing that makes this theology Christian is it's still, and I put this in bold in my notes, it still entirely depends on Christ's work. So again, still making some truth claims here that any form of universalism that, that you're going to hear me talk about still is dependent on the work of Jesus. Now, there may be folks who are, I mean this in not a, a mean sense, but like ignorant of that. They're not aware of the fact that it is the work of Jesus. And, but that doesn't mean it's not, which this is a, a kind of quick and dirty way to talk about Jesus talking about, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Christian universalism is not denying that whatsoever. All the, the, the claim is that, yes, all people will come to the Father through the work of Jesus. Somebody's awareness of that may be sooner and later than others, but it is still utterly, entirely the work of Jesus. Stephen, the references on, on Sodom being restored was Ezekiel 16.55. An example of Sodom being talked about being destroyed forever is Zephaniah 2.9. Oh, yes, we will definitely talk about Matthew 7, Antonio. Yeah. Okay, some some more scriptures kind of laying out the case here. So kind of big topic number one is this idea that God's salvific work is in the least global, worldwide. And... I would say this is a big part of the ministry of Jesus is to remind his fellow Galileans and Judeans that this has always been God's plan. By the time Jesus shows up in the scene in the first century, the Pharisees and Sadducees, Essenes, Zealots, most of your big religious political groups of the first century were very focused on the the salvation of the ethnic group of Israel. And Jesus comes along and start like his opening sermon in in Luke 3 or 4 is about how God's work of jubilee of salvation is for all the nations. And Jesus is not inventing a new, you know, particularly inclusive or pluralistic view of salvation, Jesus is merely proclaiming what the prophets had already proclaimed, but that his fellow country people had forgotten. So Isaiah 42, Isaiah 42 verses one through four, Isaiah is talking about this servant, the suffering servant that Yahweh is going to provide. And Yahweh says, here is my servant, the one I uphold, my chosen who brings me delight. I've put my spirit upon him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He won't cry out or shout aloud or make his voice heard in public. He won't break a bruised reed. He won't extinguish a faint wick, but he will surely bring justice. He won't be extinguished or broken until he has established justice in the land. And the Hebrew word for land, Eretz, can also be translated world or all the earth. So again, just kind of laying down some Hebrew Bible expectations that God's salvific work is global. This spirit, he's bringing justice to not just Israel, not just Judea or Galilee or Palestine, but to the nations. Isaiah 49 verses 5 and 6, similar sort of thing here. Now the Lord has decided the one who formed me from the womb as his servant. So now this is the suffering servant himself talking to restore Jacob to God so that Israel might return to him. Moreover, I am honored in the Lord's eyes. My God has become my strength. And he said, it's not enough since you're my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the survivors of Israel. Hence, I will appoint you as a light to the nations, so that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. 
So again, this global, worldwide intention for salvation that the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Servant of God is going to bring about. Isaiah 66, verses 18 and 23. I am coming to gather, this is God speaking, I am coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and shall see my glory. All flesh shall come to worship before me. So the prophetic expectation, Isaiah's expectation, is that when God kind of returns to Israel, Israel returns to God, this will bring back bring about a worldwide, a multiple nationwide sort of revival that all people shall come to worship Yahweh. Lamentation chapter 3, verses 22 and a little bit further. It says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end, for the Lord will not reject forever. And although he causes grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love, for God does not willingly afflict or grieve anyone. So, is it? Fascinating little verse. And this is probably just a moment to pause for a second of like, what if we built our theologies on verses like this, as opposed to, you know, what Antonio quoted in the in the chat, Matthew 7, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. Many enter through it. Small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. What, what, what one are we going to make a favorite to quote in our preaching in our evangelistic impulses in the way that we consider God? Enter through the narrow gate, otherwise you're going to be destroyed. Or God will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. He does not willingly afflict or grieve anyone. Yeah, which one's going to become a favorite? And which one is going to interpret the other? These are the sorts of questions that we have to ask around biblical interpretation. And that's not a way to that's not a way to saying that Jesus is just wrong in Matthew 7. That's not uh, we will get to that passage and that's not how I think we should read it. But I'm just, it's just interesting. The, everyone builds like a, a canon within a canon, a set of verses that sort of override all the other verses in scripture. We all do this. Which ones are we going to do it with? There's a, a book called The Wisdom of Solomon. It's an intertestamental book. So written between the Hebrew, Hebrew Bible and the New Testament. And it speaks of God about this. It says, but you are merciful to all for you can do all things and you overlook people's sins so that they may repent, which I mm, just love that verse. You overlook people's sins so that they may repent, which is just like the opposite impulse of so much of the, I don't know, preaching that I've heard. Like I, I mm, had a brother who, who had a girlfriend that he was sleeping with. They weren't married. And, and my mom's impulse was like, hey, you're, you're doing the wrong thing, and so you're going to come over for Thanksgiving to the family Thanksgiving thing, but we're going to make you sleep in separate rooms. And I'm like, Mom, that that's, this is not, this is not a, a, a tactic that's going to work. Like, it's not, it's just going to make them resentful towards you. It's not going to be like, they're going to be like, ah, now I finally see that I shouldn't be having premarital sex according to the set of values that you've laid upon me. And, and, and like similar things that go around, like, you know, homophobic tendencies of like, well, you know, I can't, I can't support this person's wedding, so I can't go. Like, no, this is, this is not helpful. And th- those are probably not great examples because I personally don't have a problem with either one of those, but like... Yeah, just this notion of you overlook people's sins, God, so that they may repent. If you want people to make a change, the number one way to do that is not going to be to condemn them, in my opinion. Okay, the passage continues. Again, this is Wisdom of Solomon, chapter 11. For you love all things that exist and detest none of the things that you have made. For you have, you would not have formed anything if you had hated it. You spare all things, for they are yours, O Lord, you who love the living. So again, this is a Jewish piece, to, a piece of writing written between the time between the time of the return to Jerusalem and the time of Jesus. And this gives a pretty good Jewish outlook of how they viewed God. You would not have formed anything if you had hated it, which gets into interesting questions of like, 
if God knows that X amount of people are going to hell, then why does God go through the process like eternal conscious torment hell? Then why does God go through the process of creating them if they're just ultimately going to be tortured forever? Stephen asked in the chat, is the wisdom of Solomon the same of Proverbs? No. Wisdom of Solomon is a you could find it in some Bibles as like apocryphal literature or deuterocanonical literature. So it's included in many Catholic Bibles, Episcopalian Bibles, not a lot of like evangelical Bibles. But no, it's a separate book, Wisdom of Solomon. And it's gorgeous, by the way. I think it's just a beautiful, beautiful book. But it usually not consider, it's not considered one of the 66 books of the Old and New Testament. So that's just a really, really brief outlook of like how, how some of the Hebrew scriptures have talked about the expectation of what God is going to do. Again, think, you know, Hebrew scriptures are written pre-Jesus and pre this sort of we very individualistic reading of what salvation is. Hebrew scriptures outlook is much more cosmic, creation-wide, and not so much nationalistic as it is global. When God comes back and is king again, that has global worldwide implication. And the hope for Israel is not only for their own restoration out of exile, but also for the restoration of all peoples to worship Yahweh, to there are other passages we didn't talk about of coming to the mountain of the temple and worshiping God there. So this global worldwide expectation. All right, I've got seven minutes left, so I'm going to keep going. A couple more vocab terms for you. So as we turn our attentions to the Christian scriptures, we're immediately going to have to start dealing with the words of Jesus. And Jesus is the, the, the person that folks who do believe in eternal conscious torment love to quote the most because Jesus's words on sort of a surface level do sound the most punishment-oriented, fire-oriented, eternal torment-oriented. So we got to deal with some vocab. Okay, so vocab word number one is the Greek word ionios. Ionios. Ionios is, and going to make some big claims here, usually mistranslated as eternal. Usually mistranslated as eternal. And... Who the hell am I to get to say that, you know, something is mistranslated? I can I can read Greek. I am not a Greek scholar. So, you know, we gotta we gotta turn to some scholarship here. And when you start studying the like classic Greek literature, so Greek literature written outside of the New Testament, of which we've got lots of examples of, Greek scholars who translate this stuff again outside of the New Testament. And then more and more biblical scholars who are translating the New Testament and doing so without feeling be stuck with our old translation. This Ionio, Ionios word is getting translated fewer and fewer times as eternal. It got translated as eternal thanks to just some accidents of history, which we don't have the time to go into here. But the for a long time, the main Bible that everybody read, thanks to the Catholic Church, was the Latin translation called the Vulgate. Vulgate hugely influenced the King James Version, which became the dominant English version for a long time. And yeah, there are two very similar words in Greek. One word does mean eternal. That is not Ionios, though. It's used often for fire and punishment, such as Matthew 18. Jesus is talking and saying, if your hand and foot cause you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it's better for you to enter life maimed or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal, Ionios, fire. So what's going on here? So I'm quoting a scholar named, an Italian scholar, classic scholar named Ilaria Ramelli. She writes, while all of these phrases indicate otherworldly suffering, none of these indicate its eternity. They have a quantitative, I'm sorry, they have not a quantitative, but a qualitative meaning. So paraphrase for a second. Ionios is not about a length of time or a number that you can count of time quantitative, but rather it's a qualitative meaning. It's about the quality of this time, the kind of time that it is. So they denote that this fire or punishment or worm is another passage are not similar to this world or age, 
but belong to another world or age. And Dr. Ramelli says the adjective Ionios never means eternal in scripture unless it's referring to God. When it refers to life and death and other things like fire, it means belonging to the world to come, otherworldly or divine. Okay? So when we come across the word eternal in almost all of our English translations today, I would argue, other Greek scholars would argue, that it's referring not to eternity as this length of time, but rather this otherworldly. It belongs to a different age. Ionios is where we get the word eon. And yeah, it's this idea of that there are different ages that one can belong to. And to have an Ionios life is to have a life of a certain kind of age or epic to belong in. And to have a fire that is Ionios is a kind of fire that's of a certain age or epic or world, the way the world is set up that one can be put into. It does not mean forever or everlasting. I pause there. We need to wrap up, but I'm curious what questions or comments this is bringing up for you. Main question it's bringing up for me is, is there like translation out there that would translate it in this way? Yeah, so far, I, I the ones I'm aware of, which are committee translations, most of our Bible translations are committee translations, usually stick with eternal as the primary translation. Single author translations of which there are plenty, a few of them have shifted the way they translate this. Number one of which being David Bentley Hart's The New Testament. And the thing to know about David Bentley Hart, so he's an Eastern Orthodox scholar and professor, New Testament translator, and is a universalist, okay? So you could say, well, David Bentley Hart's a universalist, so this is why he translate eternal translates eternal differently or you could say well he knows that the word eternal means something different ionios means something different in the new testament and therefore ended up a universalist you, yeah so you got to take this all with a grain of salt but nt wright the, the famous bishop of durham new testament scholar solidly evangelical still pretty conservative in many ways not a universalist also, most of the time, translates Ionios as something different in his translation of the New Testament, which is marketed a couple different ways, the Kingdom New Testament or the New Testament for everyone. I have a, a quick question, Seth's comment, going back to your the Hebrew portion that you talked about a few minutes ago. Yeah. Um, and I guess, and this may be beyond the scope, but I'll pose it anyway. I feel like I've heard in the past sort of the... And so far, people assume it's historical, like the violence of the Old Testament with genocide and just human rights abuses left and right, I would argue, was sort of justified in some ways because it like preserved a culture that like was necessary for the birth of Jesus to like bring about sort of salvation in that particular cultural context. And I guess for me, it's sort of raising the, the alarm of like, well, insofar, like there is like a universalism, like. Did they really have to, like, kill all the Canaanites to, like, preserve the Jewish hit community that, like, led to blah, blah, blah? So just, yeah, yeah sort of one, one of the things I'm thinking about. Yeah, sure. Yeah, that, which is, yeah, I'd love to talk about that. That's a very, that's a whole other topic. So let me give a quick example. This is N.T. Wright's New Testament for everyone. This is how he translates John 3.16. This, you see, is how, how much God loved the world, enough to give his only special son so that everyone who believes in him should not be lost, but share in the life of God's new age. So typically we hear this as whoever believeth in him shall not die, but have eternal life. And to your right translates as share in the life of God's new age, the life Ionia. So Jesus is inaugurating a new age. We are invited to participate that in that. So for other passages where Jesus talks about eternal fire or eternal punishment, David Bentley Hart would translate that as the punishment of the age, punishment of a certain sort of age that brings about that punishment, not to be confused with punishment that lasts forever. All right, that does it with our time right now. Stephen asked a good question. So 
is this the same as saying that eternal life isn't a thing? No, because we do have other places that explain that the life in the world to come is everlasting. And I can talk about that in a different place, but there are different pa- we do know from other passages that the the life of the age to come for you know those who are be, be enjoying god does have an everlasting quality to it different words yeah yeah i was just curious so because that that matthew verse of jesus saying cut off your right hand and cast it out you know i guess what would the like if you were preaching that not saying that you need to preach it right now but like what would the very simple simplistic version of explaining that passage then be like what was jesus saying if he wasn't saying like hey you know cut off that which makes you sin so you can enjoy eternal life and not eternal torment like what is he saying instead sure so one i would mind everybody in my preaching that jesus did a lot of things but one of the things that he did was a prophet to his people about the coming destruction of jerusalem in 78 so most of the time that Jesus is talking about hell, and this is a vocab word we haven't gotten to yet, he's talking about Gehenna, which is a literal valley outside of Jerusalem, where a bunch of bodies are going to be destroyed in about 40 years. And Jesus is giving a warning that if you continue in the path that you are going, this sin, then you are going to end up in the destruction of the age, which is the overthrow and destruction of Jerusalem. So it is not about eternal punishment, about avoiding some sort of ever, other wor- or sorry, afterlife form of hell. It is about th- this worldly sort of punishment. If your right or left hand or eye c- causes you to sin, aka continues this violent opposition against v- Rome, then you're going to end up in the destruction of the age and Jesus uses the word Gehenna, you're going to end up in this valley where a bunch of your kinsfolk are going to die when Rome invades. So my my sort of bold claim is that Jesus spoke very little about the afterlife, shockingly little about the afterlife. Jesus is giving a big message about nonviolent resistance and the needing to stop fomenting revolt against Rome because it's going to end up in the destruction of their city. All right, we got to cut it off. Thank you, everyone, for being great students, great questions, taking a bunch of notes that will help me decide where to go next. And we're gonna, we will definitely spend a good chunk of our time of like going through passage by passage. What about this? What about this? Because I know that's where quite a few of us want to hang out. So, thank you, everyone. Have a great rest of your Sunday.